Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. Well, what you're listening to, as some listeners will instantly recall, is a lighthearted tune from South Pacific, the musical hit set on a U.S.-occupied island in the South Pacific during World War II. So what does that have to do with spy talk? Well, while the news this week, like every week since February, has been dominated by the grim events in Ukraine, there's been an alarming new development way out in the Pacific, too, that has escaped much notice. And that's the news that the Solomon Islands, about 2,000 miles northeast of Australia, and the site of one of the most famous battles of World War II at Guadalcanal, has signed a secret agreement with China that invites it to deploy law enforcement, paramilitary police, and military personnel on the islands. Coast observers feel that this will lead to China establishing military airfields and ports on the islands, which could pose a threat to Australia, New Zealand, even Hawaii, not to mention more nearby Papua New Guinea and Fiji. Later on in the show, I'll be talking about all this with Molly Salzkog, a senior intelligence analyst at the SUFON Group, a global risk think tank. But right now we have an update on the state of anti-satellite warfare and its implications for intelligence communications, among other things. Gene? Vice President Kamala Harris recently traveled to Vandenberg Space Force Base in California to make an important announcement about one type of anti-satellite tests. I am pleased to announce that as of today, the United States commits not to conduct destructive, direct, ascent, anti-satellite missile testing. Simply put, these tests are dangerous and we will not conduct them. We are the first nation to make such a commitment And today, on behalf of the United States of America, I call on all nations to join us. The United States is taking this step unilaterally. The other three nations that have conducted anti-satellite missile tests, Russia, China, and India, have not signed on. And as I discussed in part two of my interview with Robert Cardillo, the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, there are plenty of other ways to mess with satellite operations. First of all, the reason destructive anti-satellite tests are are so dangerous is because of not the tests themselves, but the after effect. So you mentioned the four nations that have demonstrated the capability. It's China, India, Russia, and the U.S. In each case, And by the way, even though ours was at a lower altitude, meaning that there was less risk of of long-term debris, they all created debris that that continues to exist. And debris, you know, it doesn't sound, quite frankly, as bad as it should. 
you know, debris on the ground is one thing. Debris in space is, is a literal hazard to everything flying at that altitude. And so think of, think of a cloud of, you know, metal objects, and they don't have to be that large, that if it comes into contact with another satellite, high chance that 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 second satellite will become uh, disabled or destroyed. I think you may know when the Russians tested at the end of last year, their debris was so large and at a certain altitude that that the International Space Station had to go into safe mode. And, and by the way, there, there were Russian cosmonauts on the space station at the time. And and again, I so. Uh, Look, I, you know, I, I'm not in the administration. I wasn't privy to the debates that led up to the vice president's uh, announcement uh, this week. But I do believe that, and I've put my name to this before, that we've demonstrated the capability. We know we can do it if, if, we, if we must uh, in, in some sort of extremist case. But, but any, any additional testing does nothing at this point other than to create more I was going to say global, but really interstellar, you know, harm uh, because it, it threatens our use of space. There are plenty of other ways to disable satellite capabilities. Let's talk about those for a moment. Um, first of all, the vice president's proposal was about missile tests. Um, there are other ways, potentially, that satellites can be destroyed or taken out of orbit in space, right? Well, that's right. You know, destroying a satellite is probably the most uh, obvious way to defeat a satellite's capabilities, but there are much more subtle ways. So um, one, for example, um, let's go back to those optical satellites. They're basically cameras, right, looking down. Just as your eyes could be dazzled by a laser, so too can a satellite be dazzled by a laser. Now, it's not a trivial, trivial matter, right, to have a laser on the ground pointed correctly, tracking at the right speed and orientation. But it's, it's a math problem that many nations can solve for. And so that's one. Two, and this really has more effect on the SAR sensors than the others, because they emanate a signal that you need to be very careful in how you measure, jamming, uh, is 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 a pretty effective way to defeat well not defeat but at least disturb a, a SAR radar collection because you would introduce additional noise into the collection and create the outcome and let's not forget there's good old fashioned techniques like camouflage and concealment and putting objects of interest deep inside mountains that's going to continue as well to try to defeat not the satellite itself but its ability to detect what you're doing. Haven't there been um, suspicions that some of our um, competitors in space have uh, sidled up along to um, other satellites and attempted to disrupt their operation? There have indeed. And, and again, uh, I'll be true to my obligation with, for my uh, former uh, access to classified information, but uh, many um, uh, astronomers and uh, you know amateur uh, trackers have detected exactly what you've described. Uh, you know, seeing a satellite, uh, it's called approximate operation. So uh, uh, move to 
And by the way, in space, everything's bigger. So even something as close as a kilometer or two kilometers is close. And the worry is many fold, you know, um, obviously it can be collecting, right? I mean, you could go and try to find out what the other satellite is doing. But two, if you can get that close, uh, everything that we just talked about as being a ground-based potential to defeat a satellite's capability, imagine it, you know, not, not a thousand kilometers away, but one away. And then finally, um, there's concern, there's awareness that in a world in which even commercial companies are calling what they call space tow trucks. So imagine a satellite that needs help or is out of gas, literally out of gas. Oh, well, I'm going to put up a space tow truck and go get it and you know put new gas into it or add a solar panel. That all sounds great until you realize, well, wait a minute, if it can do that to a friendly satellite, could you use a tow truck against the satellite that you didn't like and tow it away? Um, this sounds a little Star Warsian, but I have to tell you, I think I think it's coming because uh, because these capabilities are are coming to the fore. And there are no international agreements governing any of these kinds of activities at this yeah, point, correct? I'm not expert here, Gene, but there's there's some generalities at the UN level about you know good space behavior, right, and being good space citizens, and that and we have agreed that no one owns anything in space; that it's all of ours. But beyond that, it's it's very it's been very difficult to get any sort of granular agreement about what's accepted and what's not. How do we make satellites more resilient? Well, two ways. Um, I, I think you know we've talked earlier about you know jamming and dazzling. You can harden a satellite, and that doesn't really mean making it you know literally hardened, but you know more protected. You can add filters. You can add. Uh, radar detections or jamming detections to know when it's happening. So you can do that individually. I would I would also say that there's there's a way to use proliferation as a defense. So you have more, and and if you have more, you can spread your risk. And two, and the U.S. has become more serious about this of late, is having what's called responsive launch. Uh, Again, I can remember the days when, you know, you would talk about, you know, satellite launches being, you know, years in development and, and months, you know, to get prepared for launch. Um, there are companies today that are talking about having the ability to launch within hours. And I do think that in many ways that can be a deterrent to, to you know, hostile space intentions, because if you realize you know, the adversary is just going to replace what you've destroyed, you know, it begins to change your calculation a bit. So I think across those three areas, I think we can become more resilient. Do you think also uh, mutual assured destruction uh, becomes a, a, um, a tool? It, well, it does if, if, if both parties are, are mutually um, dependent. Here's what I mean by that. You know, look, you know, a long, long time ago, there was the U.S.-Soviet space race. And actually, the Soviets won the initial couple of space races, both with the satellite and with a manned mission. But over the next, what, 60 years, the U.S. not just got ahead, we got very far ahead. So there was no nation with more space capability than us by far. 
That's wonderful, economic, right? Military, diplomatic. It's not so wonderful when you go, oh, we are really dependent on that and no one else is. So if you're an adversary who has very little space dependency, you care, you don't care as much about whether or not there's debris and there's quote a space war and whatnot. If if you can quote ruin that, you know, zone for us, it it equals things out. So over time, though, um, we are not, I mean, we, I would argue we still are the leader in space access and space technology, but the field has become much more even, which, you know, that, that makes it more competitive. Much more large, too, many more players. Right. And, and, and so, you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, that reduces our advantage. I would say yes, but it also does reduce kind of the, the unique vulnerability we used to have. I mean, take China, for example. I think it's been clear for the past four, five, six years, China has been doing more launches with more satellites than any nation on the world. Well, two reasons for that. One, you know, economic, right? A vast economy that, that requires more and more space capabilities. Two, it's part of national power, right? This is part of their rise and their attempt to, uh, to eventually supplant us as the world leader. But it also has increased back to your question, we now have mutual vulnerabilities in space. And I think in that case, I think mutual assured destruction or sustainment can work. Uh, what I worry about is the outlier, you know, the, the country that, that, that might have a space launch capability, but not the space dependency. Uh, that, that that creates an, an, an imbalance in the risk and I think greater vulnerability. And who would fall into that category? The two obvious cases are North Korea and Iran. Um, you know, yeah, and 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 you know, Iran, Iran, they, they both have you know space, you know, uh, you know what would you, you want to call it, nascent space capabilities. But if but if but if your intent is not to be very precise, but but just be. Um, um, looking to create havoc, uh, they clearly both could do that. I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience as the guy who went in and did the presidential daily brief for President Obama and then Vice President Biden. Would you assess them and how receptive they were, how much they understood, how much they seemed to take away? Sure, I'm happy to, Gene. Um, in this case, again, I, I just need to state up front that not only will I protect, you know, what I should be protecting from a classified point of view, but there's also a, a an Oval Office privilege that if you participate, you, you you protect those conversations. So I won't give you any, you know, specific quotes. But but to answer your question, um, I found President Obama to be the most difficult. Um, um, person I've ever provided intelligence support to. And, and by the way, that was a compliment. I, I, I mean difficult in the sense that so thoughtful, so cerebral, so strategic, but also almost uh, statuesque in receipt of the briefing, meaning you got no body language, you got no eyebrow movement, you got no kind of visuals. Uh, a long way to say, do not play poker with this man. He did not have any tells. And as a briefer, it's unnerving because you always want to know, 
is this going well? Do they do they understand? Are they following? If you get nothing, you just worry. You just worry that, oh, my goodness, he's mad or upset or he doesn't like this or whatnot. So that was President Obama. When you were done, when I was done, like I said, he would he would elevate the conversation. He would put it into some strategic context. He would ask me the question that oftentimes I was going, oh, man, that, that's the real weak point in the brief. And he found it. And now he's he's boring in on it. And look, uh, I understand he was a law professor. So, I mean, it, it, it had that kind of um, uh, sense to it. Uh, President, uh, you know, then vice president, now President Biden could not have been more different, uh, just, just, you know, just as a human engaging. Uh, whereas President Obama was stoic, quiet, and reserved. What, what are three opposite words for those? Okay, uh, energetic, enthusiastic, interactive, right? Um, interruptive, and I don't mean that as, as a critique. He's the vice president. He can do whatever he'd like to. And uh, Gene, I, I can just tell you, the, the way the Oval was set up, I used to sit across from the couch to the wing chair that the president sat in. So he was about four feet away from me. And I would brief directly to him. And to my left which was the other wing chair. So Vice President Biden would be two feet away from me. And sometimes I had to put my hand over my, you know, or next to my left eye to try to block out some of the reactions I was getting from the vice president because I was focused on customer number one. No offense to the vice president, but you're customer number two. And um, I mean, it uh, it sounds a little comical. It wasn't because it was all very serious. But but you you had one person just absorbing, right, just in receive, deep receive mode. And you had another person just in interactive mode, you know, you know, with all of that goes with that interaction. So a long way to say they 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 were very, very different personalities, both great consumers, but consumed it quite differently. So Vice President, now President Biden was a great consumer. What do you mean? Does he get intel? Does he understand what's going on? Yeah. And when I say that, I mean, look, you know, many people will know about, you know, his long experience in the Senate and the Foreign Relations Committees, many, many international trips and engagements. So he was well aware of that world. I mean, just had personal experience with countries and with issues and with leaders. And look, look that's invaluable context. Oftentimes, the intelligence professional doesn't have that, right? We're the remote, you know, we sit in the windowless rooms and do our analysis and whatnot. Well, he's an engager. But two, the reason why I found the vice president so such a, a good customer of intelligence is wasn't just how he um, uh, understood its capabilities, but he also well understood its limitations. One of your first questions uh, in our exchange was, well, it's just, you know, it's an image. Does it tell you everything? Well, and the answer is, of course not. And be because the vice president then had had so much experience, you know, getting intelligence briefs, having these exchanges, he, he was very savvy about, you know, that line. What, what can I do with this intelligence and where should I kind of tread carefully? Because uh, I, I'm also aware of its of its shortfalls, its 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 weaknesses. So we should feel we're in good hands in terms of intelligence consumption. I, look, I, I think so. Um, again, I'm not I'm not in the room uh, anymore. But if 
if past is prologue, uh, I can imagine that my successor um, has very energetic mornings uh, with the president and, and now Vice President Harris. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know the vice president as well. I, I worked for her a little bit when she was in the Senate Intel Committee. Um, I kind of feel like it, I, I can imagine the, the role reversal this time. You know, another, you know, legal scholar, professor, you know, sitting in the wing chair and then the energetic uh, President Biden in the number one chair. So may, maybe the chemistry is the same, but I... Uh, I do believe we're well served by good um, consumers, but also uh, challengers of the Intel community. And you, you have to have both. Did you ever brief President Trump? I did uh, only one time. Then Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats was bringing in to the new president. So this is spring of 2017, basically tutorials. Because, you know, here you have somebody who's not from the government, does not have that background that I just described, and he really needs to know what can this community do for me and what can they not do for me. So April of 2017, it was my turn to basically have a very classified version of this exchange, Gene, in which I would bring in all the examples of imagery that we could take from space and all the capabilities that we had, you know, you know, all of them, well, most of them classified. We did talk about commercial imagery as well, but most of them classified because you want, you want customer number one to understand what you can and can't do. Um, so it was, it, 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 it was a very healthy exchange. He asked a million questions, which he should, right? He, you know, this was new to him. And so I found, I found him to be inquisitive I, I found him to be responsive, and um, I, th I think we were scheduled for 15 minutes. It went closer to an hour, which is a good thing because, again, the, the, the material was well-received. Um, but again, I, I have a data set of one uh, for President Trump and a data set of 1,000 uh, for President Obama and Vice President Biden, so different ability to provide insight beyond that. You spent decades in the intelligence community, and there's been a lot of conversation about how much um, satellite imagery has been shared with the public uh, about Ukraine. Do you think there has been a fundamental shift in attitude or culture within the intelligence community about the value of sharing? Um. So first of all, we should remind all that when you say intelligence community, you're describing tens, hundreds of thousands of people, what, 19 different agencies now. So very difficult to put, you know, one comment over all that. But suffice to say, there remains a tension in that community between those, the, I'll say those that are enthusiastic or at least um, forward leaning with respect to the kinds of partnerships that used to be uh, non-existent between commercial and government. Um, and there are those that, that, you know, think more about the risk, right? And the vulnerability and the, and, and the perhaps damage that could occur throughout. I mean, you've heard my bias throughout. I was a big believer that, that if we could 
if we, the U.S. intelligence community, could do a better job of thoughtfully leveraging commercial capabilities, we could do two things. One, we could support that early national security policy to have a vibrant U.S. commercial um, industry. And two, we could take the government's you know, bespoke efforts and move them up the scale. So to me, that would be a better use of taxpayer dollars. That would be a more, um, uh, a more efficient way to, to have a win-win, right? You, you'd actually have the, uh, the, the vibrant economic um, a contribution, but also your national security could be enlarged. So I'm, I'm even more confident now, Gene, that I've got three years on the other side. Um, I like to t remind people, America's secret sauce is not, you know, the military. It's not our budget. It's not, you know, kind of our overall traditional senses of power. It's the innovation of our markets. It's the risk capital. It's the talent that we have. And by the way, the talent isn't all American, right? In the industry isn't all American. It's a combination. But I guess it's it's our way of welcoming those three things into uh, our decision space that I think moves us forward most quickly. And the sooner the U.S. intelligence community can not just accept it, but embrace it, I think the better. Do a look ahead for me. How do you think the business of geospatial intelligence will be different or will be the same in five years, in 10 years? Um, I told you earlier, I, I really do believe that there's a lot of unmet potential in that spectral realm. And I mean that from everything from climate, right, to agricultural yield, to quite frankly, to supply chain. I think we can do better job of strengthening all three of those uh, broad uh, benefits for society. And then, and, and then again, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a time when in this, in this competitive world of intelligence and defense and, and countries, there was a time when if I have an image and you didn't have the image, I won, right? I've got something you don't have. I know something you don't know. I think the reality, I know the reality is more and more that that's going to be a rare case, that I have something you don't have. We both are going to have relatively equal access to the sensing capabilities. The advantage will go to algorithmic development, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and uh, what I call concept, concepts of decision operations. So how do you leverage all of those inputs to create the outcome that you desire. Um, I think for a long time, uh, again, one of the strengths of the US military is the way that it pushes down decision-making through the chain of command. It, uh, it authorizes and protects you know, low-level decision-making. That's not something that's common around the world. And I think we need to now take that mentality about how we make decisions. We need to apply them with the machines that are combined with the imaging that's coming together. And I'm confident. I think, I think we can broadly, I think we can be quite competitive. I think we can remain the leader, um, um, but, 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 we, but we do need to recognize and appreciate that we're gonna do it differently. That was Robert Cardillo, now chairman of the board at Planet Federal. He worked for almost 40 years in geospatial intelligence for the federal government, including a stint as director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency.
It was a great interview, Gene. I'm really fascinated by his discussions of the style of briefing different kinds of presidents uh, and vice presidents, as it turns out. It goes to the old uh, saw that the most important agent the CIA director has is the president of the United States. He's got to win over that person like he would an agent uh, and get their attention and their uh, trust. And that's not always easy. Of course, it wasn't that easy at all with, with President Trump, who didn't like the CIA, except for one director. But uh, anyway, it was fascinating. Well, thanks. A reminder to all of you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review. Also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment. Now we're going to swivel to the Solomon Islands, where, according to an alleged internal government document obtained by Australian intelligence, the island nation's prime minister, Manessas Sogavar, outlined his secret plans to establish a virtual political and military alliance with China. And he has indeed signed that agreement, according to news reports. That arrangement could not only help the embattled prime minister put down local anti-China protests, but lead to Guadalcanal and other islands becoming a logistical hub for Chinese warships. To discuss this development, I turn to Molly Salskog, a senior intelligence analyst at the Sufan Group, a global security think tank, who recently wrote a piece analyzing what's going on between China and the Solomon Islands. Molly Salskog, welcome to Spy Talk. Why should we care about China advancing its national interests somewhere way out there in the Pacific Ocean? Give us a primer. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, late late last month, there was this draft security agreement between the People's Republic of China and the Solomon Islands, which is a is an island nation just um, north of Australia. And this, this draft security agreement was leaked online and it's feared by experts, analysts, but also by the United States and Five Eye allies in the region like Australia and New Zealand, that this the, the vagueness and the broadness of this agreement and the fact that it's been done in secrecy can actually prove detrimental, not only for the Solomon Islands sovereignty, but also increased Chinese security presence in the region, which could be destabilized the South Pacific. Now, I haven't, thank you for that. Now, I haven't seen any official Chinese statements on this yet. But when I was in China in 2015, officials never tired of showing us a map of China and the United States and the Pacific and saying, look, you guys are way, you, you live way over here. What are you doing with all these bases right off our shore, not to mention Taiwan and Japan? Guam and so on. You've got a policy of encirclement here, and we're not going to stand for it any longer. So isn't this a natural kind of uh, defensive measure by China? Couldn't that be argued, or won't they argue that? I mean, they would argue so. Uh, but, you know, the Solomon Islands sits on these in this very strategic position, has been. Historically, there was a, a pretty destructive World War II battle. Guadalcanal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, between the U.S. And, and the Japanese forces, 
And so it sits in this very geostrategic uh, place in the Indo-Pacific. And, and the fear is that it could significantly threaten, you know, they, they, both Australia and the US have expressed fears that this agreement could actually open up for the establishment of a military base for China on the island in the island nation. Uh, China and the Solomon Islands have disputed this claim. But again, this uh, the the draft agreement that was leaked was very vague, um, and also done in secrecy. And China's history of making inroads, both economically and politically, into countries, and then um, establishing strategic infrastructure uh, and taking over strategic infrastructure, say in Sri Lanka, in Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, gives you know the past informs the present. And given that they've been quite aggressive with this, the fear is that that would happen in the Solomon Islands eventually, and it could block critical shipping routes through the South Pacific, and it would also allow for military intelligence activities against the U.S. and its allies. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to the specifics of that agreement in a second, but before we leave this subject, you wrote in your uh, piece that... The Solomon Islands sits on sea lane routes that are critical to Australia, communications and shipping. What do you mean by communications? If, and it is a big if, we should say that, because both China and the Solomon Islands have, have disputed this. But if there would be some sort of permanent or semi-permanent milita Chinese military presence in the Solomon Islands, this could um, you know, significantly threaten Australia, New Zealand, and the US cooperation militarily, um, and, and in other ways, like critical shipping routes, blocking that. And that has been a big contention between the US and China in other areas like the South China Sea and the artificial islands that China has been building there, that it would actually uh, prevent uh, free navigation uh, it, on the seas. So. Let's talk about the specifics of the agreement, or at least what we know about them. They were leaked recently uh, in mm. an intelligence operation on its own. Uh, <laughs> the details were leaked. Um, do, can we anticipate seeing Chinese security forces, police advisors, and so on landing on the islands anytime soon? Well, so we haven't seen the actual final agreement that was signed on, um, I believe, April 20th. Uh, it was announced that it was signed, but opposition uh, leaders in the Solomon Islands have said that the final agreement actually looks quite, is very close to the draft agreement that was leaked also by the opposition on, on social media. But in essence, it paves the way for Chinese law enforcement and police to be deployed to the Solomon Islands to assist with, quote, maintaining social order. So this would also include, you know, paramilitary police, law enforcement, and, and quite heavy, you know, um, security presence. Um, but it also would grant access to Chinese troops and naval ships for logistical purposes like replenishment and crew transfers. And it has been criticized not only by the opposition in Solomon, the political oppositions in the Solomon Islands, but also Australia, the US, New Zealand for being vague um, and done in secrecy. And that's where the concern really lies. So there was a lot of opposition, riots and so on uh, against the Solomon Islands government uh, for when this, uh, even before this agreement was publicized. So uh, that's important if China can assist in putting down these riots. 
so what has been the reaction from the Solomon's Islands government since these plans were leaked? Yeah, well, you're you're pointing out something really important here, Jeff, and this is what, you know, not only the political opposition um, in the Solomon Islands, but other experts, analysts, and also, um, you know, U.S. and allies have said that this security pact raises a lot of concerns how increased Chinese influence will actually impact the sovereignty and stability of the Solomon Islands, um, because after the 2019 election of Prime Minister Sugabara of the Solomon Islands, the nation, uh, the island nation officially severed diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favor of, of China. And, you know, while the Solomon Islands has historically been much closer um, to Australia as an economic and security partner, under Sugawara, they've been increasingly inching closer to China, primarily economically, but now also security-wise with this pact. And so, in essence, this agreement could give Sugawa the ability to call on Chinese protection in case there are any sort of civil uprising, even in opposition to him, which was, like you mentioned, in November, there was there was civil unrest in the Solomon Islands, actually because parts of the population were very unhappy with increased Chinese influence under Sugawara's government. Tell us a little bit about the prime minister. He's been in and out of the Solomon's Island government for decades. Uh, he's been an opposition leader. He's been prime minister two or three times before. Is there anything about him that accounts for this really dramatic change in policy, welcoming? He had to know this would be extremely provocative to invite Chinese security forces onto the island. So is there any clue uh, in his background that uh, gives you uh, reason to believe that he's maybe a Chinese agent, he was paid <laughs> off, he was bribed. What do you think? Well, I do think that the, the, this PRC Solomon Island Security Pact is, you know, yet another example of how Beijing has gradually increased both its economic and security. Well, let me, let, let me just interrupt you there. We know yeah. that China is uh, always going to expand its interests, but what about the prime minister of the Solomon Islands? Is there anything in his background that explains this dramatic shift in posture? In essence, on the beckoning of his suggestion, um, he could call for Chinese protection of his government, which is mm -hmm. very worrisome when you think about the sovereignty of the Solomon Islands. So this is a self-protection measure is the bottom well, line. Obviously, he denies this and says that it will, you know, not undermine the peace and harmony of their region. And he's walking into this agreement with eyes wide open. But again, this is your classic example of how the Chinese government are very successful in making inroads and, and uh, economic benefits through courting the elite of countries. Okay, so don't we... Uh... Uh, don't we bear some responsibility for these developments? We closed our embassy in Solomon Islands in 1993. Australia has had continuing friction with Solomon Islands for years and years. And suddenly, whoa, big surprise. So the prime minister says, uh, I'm tired of you guys. And it's in my own interest to make a deal with the Chinese. Don't we bear some responsibility for that? Oh, 100%, Jeff. I mean, this is an example of a, a quite severe strategic and tactical failure, not only on the on 
the United States part, but also our closest allies, Australia, who's been the primary, you know, primary country having a close relationship with the Solomon Islands. And yes, we are, we closed the embassy. Um, and in February of this year, we announced that we will reopen an embassy. And after that high level visit last week from uh, the U U.S. National Security Council and the, and the top eight in, in top Asia um, head up over at state, they visited the Solomon Islands and there were a couple of announcements, you know, expediting opening the embassy, providing public health assistance, all of these nice fluffy words. But, you know, this, I'm, I also worry, Jeff, to your point that now we're just being reactive uh, to that, oh, we need to care about yeah. the Solomon Islands it, because it, it, China does. It smacks of sending in the firemen after the barn is on fire. So, a little bit like that. So um, you wrote in your piece that we've got to, you, you said it's imperative that U.S. foreign policy not be purely reactive. What do you mean by that? Exactly this, you know, the, the this draft agreement is leaked. Now we send, you know, high level visit. Now we expedite the, the, the embassy opening. But again, worry that it's being reactive. And instead, we should take a step back and focus on what, what does the Solomon Islands care about? What does the political opposition there care about? What do the people there care well, about? Well, what do they care In about? Climate change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Climate change is one of the, it's an existential threat for a lot of the South Pacific so, Islands. But, yeah, but we're not going to be like King Canute putting our finger in the dam, trying to keep the water out. I mean, there's nothing we can do about climate change in the short term, for sure, and maybe not even in the long term at this point with the Solomon Islands. So there's one issue that really is a non-starter. It seems to me we're going to show up with announcements that we're fighting climate change. Well, we're not, really. Uh, so give me another issue, another wedge that the United States might have to counter Chinese influence there. I think we work, need to work very closely with Australia. A lot of another issue is, you know, economic and trade integration of the South Pacific with, um, you know, richer neighbors like and, and more dominant players like Australia and New Zealand. Australia has given a lot of aid historically to um, South uh, Pacific islands, including the Solomon Islands, but treating them more like equals, like we want to trade with you. Um, we are going to ramp up agreements of trade and so forth. That could guarantee, you know, freedom of navigation that they are, it's also in everyone's interest that freedom of navigation remains, you know, in this very critical part of, 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 of the Pacific. Well, I must say that sounds like a classic too little, too late. Um, well, anyway, and China's reaping the rewards from that. So we ignored it. The, uh, let Solomon Islands go its own way, didn't really care about it, didn't even have an embassy there. Australia, which is its neighbor, you know, didn't see the fire burning in its own backyard, let it go. So so here we are. Uh, another really, you know, one of those little things like a, 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 a rock in your shoe and, or a pebble in your shoe that becomes a rock. So, well, I have no doubt that we'll be back uh, looking at this issue again. I mean... Chinese encroachment in the in the Western Pacific, um, creeping toward the United States, having a shot at Hawaii and Guam. This is very worrisome, I think, to uh, people of all political stripes. So anyway, thank you, Molly Sofskog, for coming on board and talking to us about it. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. 
Well, that all spells trouble, and as if we didn't have enough on our hands, a top American official suggested Tuesday that the U.S. would respond militarily if China opened bases in the Solomon Islands. We have respect for the Solomon Islands' sovereignty, said Daniel Crittenbrink, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, after he met with the Prime Minister. But we also wanted to let them know, he said, that if steps were taken to establish a de facto permanent military presence, then we would have significant concerns and we would naturally respond to those concerns. Doesn't sound very good. All it made me think about is that old saying that the Chinese are playing go and we're just playing checkers. Hmm. And it's happening not just in uh, the South Pacific, but also Africa, Latin America, all over the world, all over the world. I can't remember the last time we were this busy. They're busier. Um, Thanks so much for joining us uh, for this edition of Spy Talk. Join us again, please, and subscribe to our podcast. Also, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. Do all that, please. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening again this week. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.